Poem of the Man God, Book 1, Number 52, Jesus at the Wedding at Cana. I see a house, a typical Middle East house, a long, low, white house with few windows and doors, with a terraced roof surrounded by a little wall about one meter high with a shady vine pergola, which reaches up to the sunny terrace and stretches its branches over more than half of its surface. An outside staircase climbs up along the front, reaching up to a door which is situated halfway up the facade. At ground level, there are a few low doors, not more than two on each side of the house, and they open onto low, dark rooms. The house is built in the middle of what looks like a kind of threshing floor, but is actually more a grassy open space than a threshing floor, with a well in its center. There are some fig and apple trees. The house faces the road, but it is not set right on the roadside. It is a little way off the road, and a path along the grass links it to the road, which looks like a main road. It seems to be on the outskirts of Cana, a house owned by farmers who live in the middle of their holding. The country stretches calm and green far beyond the house. The sun is shining in a completely blue sky. At first I do not see anything else. There is no one near the house. Then I see two women with long dresses and mantles that also cover their heads like veils, walking along the road and then on the path. One is older than the other, about fifty years old, with a dark dress, the gray-brown hue of raw wool. The other woman is wearing lighter garments, a pale yellow dress, and a blue mantle. She looks about thirty-five years old. She is really beautiful, slender, and her carriage is most dignified, although she is most kind and humble. When she is nearer, I notice her pale face, her blue eyes and her blonde hair visible on her forehead. I recognize our most holy lady. I do not know who the other woman, the older woman, is. They are speaking to each other, and our lady smiles. When they are near the house, someone, who is obviously wa watching the arrival of the guests, informs the others in the house, and the two men and two women, all in their best clothes, go out to meet them. They give the two women, and particularly Our Lady, a most warm welcome. It is early morning, I would say about nine o'clock, perhaps earlier, because the country has the fresh look of the early morning hours when the dew makes the grass look greener and the air is still free from dust. It appears to be the springtime because the grass in the meadows is not parched by the summer sun, and the corn in the fields is still young and green and earless. The leaves of the fig tree and the apple tree are green and tender, and those of the vines on, are the same. But I see no flowers on the apple tree, and there is no fruit on the apple and fig tree, or on the vines, which means that the apple tree blossomed only recently, and the little fruit cannot be seen as yet. Mary, who is most warmly welcomed, and is escorted by an elderly man who appears to be the landlord, climbs up the outside staircase and enters a large hall, which seems to fill the whole of the house upstairs, or most of it. If I am correct, the rooms on the ground floor are the ones where they actually live, where they have their storeroom, wine cellar, whereas the hall upstairs is used on special occasions, such as feast days or for tasks which require a lot of space, such as drying and pressing foodstuffs. For special celebrations, the hall is cleared of every object and then decorated as it is today, with green branches, mats, and tables prepared with rich dishes. In the center, there is a richly laid table with amphorae and plates full of fruit. Along the right-hand side wall, in respect to me, 
There was another table already prepared, but not so sumptuously. On the left-hand side, there is a kind of long dresser with plates of cheese and other foodstuffs, which look like cakes covered with honey and sweetmeats. On the floor, near the same wall, there are more amphorae and six large vases, shaped more or less like copper pitches, pitchers. I would call them jars. Mary listens benignly to what they are telling her. Then she takes off her mantle and kindly helps to finish laying the tables. I see her going to and fro, sorting out the bed seats, straightening up the wreaths of flowers, improving the appearance of the fruit dishes, making sure that the lamps are filled with oil. She smiles, speaks very little, and in a very low voice. Instead, she listens a lot and with so much patience. A loud sound of musical instruments, not very harmonious, is heard coming from the road. They all rush out, with the exception of Mary. I see the bride come in, smartly dressed and happy, surrounded by relatives and friends. The bridegroom, who was the first to rush out and meet her, is now beside her. At this point there is a change in the vision. Instead of the house, I see a village. I do not know whether it is Cana or a nearby village, and I see Jesus with John and another man who I think is Jude Thaddeus, but I may be wrong. I am sure about John. Jesus is wearing a white tunic and a dark blue mantle. When he hears the sound of the instruments, Jesus' companion questions a man about something and then tells Jesus. Then Jesus, smiling, says, Let us go and make my mother happy. And he starts walking across the fields towards the house with his two companions. I forgot to mention that it is my impression that Mary is either a relation or a close friend of the bridegroom's relatives because she is on familiar terms with them. When Jesus arrives, the same watchman as before informs the others. The landlord with his son, the bridegroom, and Mary goes down to meet him and greets him respectfully. He then greets the other two, and so does the bridegroom. But what I like is the loving and respectful way in which Jesus and Mary exchange their greetings. There are no effusions, but the words, Peace be with you, are pronounced with a look and a smile with a hundred embraces and a hundred kisses. A kiss trembles on Mary's lips, but it is not given. She only lays her little hand on Jesus' shoulder and lightly touches a curl of his long hair, the caress of a chaste lover. Jesus climbs the staircase beside his mother, followed by his disciples, the landlord and the groom, and enters the banquet hall where the women start bustling about, adding seats and plates for the three guests who apparently were not expected. I would say that Jesus' coming was uncertain, and the arrival of his companions, companions was completely unforeseen. I can distinctly hear the master's full, virile, most sweet voice say on entering the hall, May peace be in this house and the blessing of God on you all. A greeting of majesty addressed to all the people present. Jesus dominates everybody with his bearing and his height. He is a guest and a casual one, but he seems to be the king of the banquet, more than the groom, more than the landlord. No matter how humble and obliging, he is the one who dominates. Jesus sits at the central table with the bride and the bridegroom, their relatives, and the most influential friends. The two disciples are also invited to sit at the same table, out of respect for Jesus. Jesus' back is turned to the wall, where the large jars and the dresser are. He therefore cannot see them, neither can he see the steward bustling about the dishes of roast meat, which are brought in through a little door near the dresser. 
I notice one thing. With the exception of the mothers of the young couple and of Mary, no woman is sitting at that table. All the women who are making a din worthy of one hundred people are sitting at the other table near the wall and are served after the young couple and the guests of importance. Jesus is sitting near the landlord in front of Mary, whose place is near the table. The banquet starts, and I can assure you that they lack neither appetite nor thirst. The ones who eat and drink little are Jesus and his mother, who speaks also very little. Jesus talks a little more, but although very moderate, he is neither sullen nor disdainful in the little he says. He is kind, but not talkative. He answers when he is questioned. When they speak to him, he takes an interest in the subject. He states his opinion, but then concentrates on his thoughts, like one accustomed to meditation. He smiles. He never laughs. If he hears any inconsiderate joke, he pretends he has not heard. Mary is nourished by the contemplation of her Jesus, and so is John, who is at the end of the table and hangs on his master's lips. Mary notices that the servants are talking in low voices to the steward, who looks very embarrassed, and she understands what the cause of the unpleasant situation is. "'Son,' she whispers in a low voice, thus drawing Jesus' attention. "'Son, they have no more wine.' "'Woman, what is there still between you and me?' Jesus, when saying these words, smiles even more gently, and Mary smiles too, like two people aware of some truth which is their joyful secret and is ignored by everyone else. Jesus explains the meaning of the sentence directly to Maria Valtorta. Says Maria Valtorta, That still, which is omitted by many translators, is the key word of the sentence and explains its true meaning. I was the son, submissive to my mother up to the moment when the will of my father told me that the hour had come when I was to be the master. From the moment my mission started, I was no longer the son, submissive to my mother, but I was the servant of God. My moral ties with my mother were broken. They had turned into higher bonds, all of a spiritual nature. I always called Mary my holy mother. Our love suffered no interruptions, neither did it even cool down, nay, it was never so perfect as when I was separated from her as by a second birth, and she gave me to the world and for the world as the Messiah and evangelizer. Her third sublime mystical maternity took place when she bore me to the cross in the torture of Golgotha and made me the redeemer of the world. What is there still between you and me? Before I was yours, only yours. You gave me orders and I obeyed you. I was subject to you. Now I belong to my mission. Did I not say he who lays his hand on the plow and looks back to bid farewell to those who are staying is not fit for the kingdom of God? I had laid my hand on the plow, not to cut the ground with the plowshare, but to open the hearts of men and sow there the word of God. I was to take my hand away from the plow only when they would tear it away, to nail it to the cross, and to open with my torturing nail my father's heart, out of which forgiveness for mankind was to flow. That still, forgotten by most, meant this. You were everything to me, mother, as long as I was only Jesus of Mary of Nazareth, and you are everything in my spirit. But since I became the expected Messiah, I belong to my father. Wait for a little while, and once my mission is over, I will be once again entirely yours. 
you will hold me once again in your arms as when I was a little child, and no one will ever again contend with you for your son, considered as the disgrace of mankind, who will throw his mortal remains at you to bring on you the shame of being the mother of a criminal. And afterwards you will have me once again, triumphant, and finally you will have me forever when you are triumphant in heaven. But now I belong to all those men, and I belong to the Father who sent me to them. That is the sense of that short but so full of meaning still. Mary says to the servants, Do what he will tell you. In the smiling eyes of her son, Mary has read his consent, veiled by the great teaching to all those who are called. And Jesus says to the servants, Fill the jars with water. I see the servants filling the jars with water brought from the well. I hear the pulley screeching as the dripping pail is pulled up and lowered down. I see the steward pour out some of the liquid with astonished eyes, then taste it with gestures of even greater astonishment, relish it, and speak to the landlord and the groom. They were near each other. Mary looks at her son once again and smiles. Then, having received a smile from him, she bows her head, blushing slightly. She is happy. A murmur spreads throughout the hall. They all turn their heads towards Jesus and Mary. Some stand up to get a better view. Some go near the jars. Then a moment's silent, which is immediately broken by an outburst of praises for Jesus. He stands up and simply says, Thank Mary, and withdraws from the banquet. His disciples follow him. On the threshold he repeats, May peace be in this house and God's blessing on you. And then he adds, Goodbye, Mother. And the vision ends. And Jesus teaches Mary Valtorta as follows. When I said to the disciples, let us go and make my mother happy, I had given the sentence a deeper meaning than it seemed. I did not mean the happiness of seeing me, but the joy of being the initiatress of my miraculous activity and the first benefactress of mankind. Always remember that. My first miracle happened because of Mary, the very first one. It is a symbol that Mary is the key to miracles. I never refuse my mother anything, and because of her prayer, I bring forward also the time of grace. I know my mother, the second in goodness after God. I know that to grant you a grace is to make her happy, because she is all love. That is why I said, knowing her, let us go and make her happy. Besides, I wanted to make her power known to the world, together with mine. Since she was destined to be joined to me in the flesh, it was fair she should be joined to me in the power that is shown to the world. Because we were one flesh, I in her, she around me, like the petals of a lily round its scented, lively pistil. And she was united to me in sorrow, because we were both on the cross, I with my body, she with her soul, as a lily is scented because of its corolla and because of the essence extracted from it. I say to you what I said to the guests. Thank Mary. It is through her that you had with you the master of the miracle, and you have my graces, particularly those of forgiveness. Rest in peace. We are with you.